you remember the old movie Back to the Future? Um, again, I don't uh, recommend movies, um, but we're borrowing the title. And we're borrowing the title in this sense. We, we want to get back to the basics so that we can move forward with our future. Uh, I think at times we lose touch with some of the basics, the foundations of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So during the weeks ahead, uh, through January and February particularly, I'm going to emphasize some of the basics. We're going to get back to the basics in order that we can, and then I want to engage us because at the end of February, we always have a family meeting where we talk about the days ahead. So I want to talk about the basics so that we can move forward in our future. And I, I want to begin the series uh, by preaching a sermon that I've preached before several times, as a matter of fact. I don't usually do repeats uh, sermons, but uh, this is a good one uh, in the sense of about every three or four years, I, I want to speak this word because it reminds me of this easy path that we as followers of Jesus Christ get into where we become lethargic, we become apathetic, or we become asleep. And don't even know it. And Martin Luther there's this, has this illustration where um, the demons of hell, this is before screw tape letters, and, um, but Martin Luther tells this illustration about uh, uh, the devil speaking to the demons of hell saying, hey, give me some things you've done to keep Christianity from moving forward. And one demon steps forward and says, there were some believers traveling through the desert, and I, I loosed the lions on them, and the lions killed them. And Mar Martin Luther said, well, the devil said, in Martin Luther's illustration, the devil said, well, what is that? You know, their bodies have died, but their souls have lived forever. And how, how did that matter? And another demon stepped forward and said, there were some Christians traveling over the sea, and a great wind came up and destroyed the ships, and the ship sank, and they all perished. And again, the devil said, well, what is that? Well, again, their bodies may have perished, but their souls are living. They're, they're still alive, living forever. And then third demon stepped forward and said, I have for 10 years worked on attempting to make a Christian fall asleep. And with that, the hordes of hell cheered. Because there's this thing that happens when a Christian loses their passion, loses their edge, loses whenever I review this, it grieves my heart because I look around at the world around us and think we've lost in, in, in falling asleep, we've lost sight of what it is that God is really calling us to do. That we when we fall asleep, we dream dreams of something else. I look in our city and I, 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 I'm concerned about what God wants to do versus what God is able to do in what is undoubtedly one of the most churched cities in all of the world. And then I look at my own life and I'm like, what the heck am I doing? 
what is going on? Where is that passion? Where's that edge that God is calling me to? R.T. Kendall, who was here a number of years ago, talked about three characteristics of being asleep. You don't know that you're asleep until you're awake. You dream about doing things that you would not do otherwise or if you were awake. And you hate the sound of the alarm. You hit that sloth button. I call it the snooze, but I call it the sloth button just over and over again. You hate the sound of the alarm. I, I, I pray that you won't hate the sound of the alarm this morning. The alarm that says, people, it is time for us all to wake up. To accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. How do you even know if you're asleep? How do you know if you're asleep or in a spiritual sleep? And I've got some things listed here. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. I'm not going to even put these up on the PowerPoint. But I, I, I just highlighted some in my own head. Um, when prayer ceases to be a priority for you, when it becomes secondary, tertiary, when it, when it goes down the list, when it ceases to be a priority for you, when you become content with the spiritual knowledge that you've already acquired, I don't have to learn anything else. I, I know it already. Or when that knowledge that you have is not applied inwardly and then outwardly, you're either asleep or in danger of falling asleep. When thoughts about heaven and eternity and the kingdom of God and the passion for his kingdom cease to be a priority for you. Here's a tough one. When spiritual discussions become a source of embarrassment for you, when things like leisure or sports or entertainment take more of your time than any other segment of your life, especially spiritual things, when acquiring stuff becomes more important to you than acquiring the kingdom of God, When at the slightest excuse, you avoid any kind of spiritual discipline or spiritual duty. I believe that it is time for us to wake up. By the way, I made that list based on my own life. So don't think I'm trying to accuse. I just want to say, listen, we're all in danger of these things over a large period of time. It says in Romans 13, 11, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Paul is speaking to believers here in Romans, and he is saying to the believers in the church at Rome, now is the time to wake up. Understand the present time. Now is the time. If you, by chance, think that the new political regime that will enter in January is going to answer your problems, please wake up. Please wake up. Um, I don't want to get off on this, but um, there is only one God. There is only one king. There is only one ruler. There is only one way. There's only one, and it is not that. 
we need to wake up to what God is calling us to do. So I want to give us three points on waking up, and I'm using three passages from the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about the sluggard. <laughs> Again, my kids used to love us reading a proverb a day to them and always concerned about the sluggard. The sluggard is someone in the book of Proverbs who is lazy, but also it can be given to someone who's just asleep. In a spiritual sense, there's, there's sleep. So let's look at these three passages from the book of Proverbs and things that we need to awaken, awaken ourselves to, to wake up to. First is awake to the call for diligence. Awake to the call for diligence. It says in Proverbs 26, 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on its bed. So you get the picture. The door's just swinging back and forth. This is the sluggard, just boom. One side, the other side. One side, the other side. It is a picture of a one who has ceased to be diligent, the one who is asleep and becomes lazy, we, we need to guard against lethargy or apathy in our lives. See, the thing about the sluggard is, if, if technically he's moving, right? I mean, he's just moving from one side to the other side, one side to the other side. But he's not moving forward. He ceased to be diligent in what he's doing. Do um, you remember the old cartoon Ziggy? Uh, Ziggy was that little round-headed squatty guy, and, and he sees a sign that says this, life is what you make it. But he replies, or it's what somebody else makes when you're not paying attention. That's what happens. When you lose diligence in your life, somebody's got a wonderful plan or a horrible plan for your life, and it'll be fulfilled if you quit being diligent. They'll set an agenda for you. Uh, one of my uh, children went to um, a concert last night, and he's not here this morning because he went to a New Year's Eve concert at the BJCC. You can guess who it is later. Um, but he got an email from the BJCC. That's for those of you who are new to the town, uh, that, that the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Center, uh, telling the concert goers what items they could and could not bring to this concert. And so, because he bought the tickets uh, on my credit card, um, the email came to me. So I'm reading through this list of things you can, and it's a long list, but I, I wanna give you 10, the top 10 things you cannot take to a concert at the BJCC. Are you ready? Because they want you to, they wanna be diligent. You cannot take any professional cameras, any video and or audio equipment, which includes GoPro cameras. That makes sense. You're going to a concert. You can't take stuff that the artist might record. Number two, I'm going to skip because I'm going to come back to it. Number three, any item that can be used as a weapon. I, I, yeah, I understand. Number four, fireworks, pyrotechnics, or any other kind of explosive. Don't take that to the concert. Uh, number five, flammable products or materials and sprays. Again, makes sense. Six, illegal substances. Seven's a little shaky, but I understand. Pets. You can't take your pet except service animals. Now, I don't know who wants to take their kitty to the concert, but you can't do it. 
You can't take your uh, dog or cat to the concert. You can't take glass in any form. You cannot bring in outside alcohol. Now, I have a feeling that you can get it there, but you cannot bring in outside alcohol. And if, just in case you didn't think they got the illegal substances the first time, they're going to repeat it again. Uh, illegal substances, and they're going to add some um, things like including marijuana here. So illegal substances, two of the top ten. They're going to repeat themselves. I want to go back to number two, the second one. Now, of all the things you could think of in the world that you cannot take to a concert, and we think it's so important that we're going to list it as number two. Anything's come to mind? I doubt this one does. Here it is. Hula hoops. <laughs> number two on the BJCC list of things not to bring to a concert right there with weapons and drugs and alcohol. Don't you bring that deadly hula hoop in here. I was just stunned. I mean, even if you put it, it seems like it should be a little further down on. But we at the BJCC, we are diligent to keep those hula hoops out of here. I would like to contend that sometimes we in the church have lost our priorities because we've lost our diligence. We move things up to the top of the list that don't even need to be near the top of the list. Things that we say to people, oh, you can do this and you can't do that. You can do this and you can't do that. Why? Because when you're not diligent, all you're left with is rules. You see, diligent isn't about doing rules. Diligence about, is about your relationship with God. Am I being conscious and diligent? It's the same way in your personal relationships with people. You know, if you don't, it takes intention to be in relationship with people. Hello? I mean, really, if you don't do anything, those relationships don't stay active. They don't stay, if, if you don't invite somebody to go to lunch with you, if you don't invite somebody over, if you don't call somebody, if you don't engage them, if you're not purposeful or diligent, the thing just ceases it loses it. We need to wake up to the fact that we need to be diligent. It says in Hebrews, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he, the author of Hebrews, he, he contrasts diligence with laziness and he says the way to combat this is through faith and patience receiving what is promised faith and patience loss of diligence results when our faith dwindles or we become impatient let me say that again a loss of diligence will incur when our faith dwindles and we become impatient. <clears throat> For those who know me well, which are a lot of you here, you, you would know that probably patience wouldn't be one of the virtues listed top of your description of Pastor Bart. Oh, he's a patient man. Probably, probably not. 
But God has called us in our relationship with him and with others to be people of faith who walk out in patient endurance what he's called us to do. On the night before he is betrayed, or the night he is betrayed, Jesus calls his disciples and he, and he, brings, he brings three of them, his, his closest three with him out to a prayer meeting. He says, I'm going to go over here and pray. You, you, you pray for me, which I think is a great picture, by the way. Sometimes the person praying needs people to pray for him while he prays. You understand? Sometimes, sometimes the leader needs others holding his arms up. And so Jesus calls his three to do that. He comes back, and they're asleep, and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Now, we gloss over this a lot of times. But think about this. For three years, Peter, James, John, they have witnessed things that you and I can only imagine. Miracles, feedings, walking on water, dead people raised. I mean, they have seen it, right? I mean, things that we have to receive in faith, they saw Jesus do it. And yet, when presented with the opportunity, they can't hang in there for one more hour. There's this tendency in all of our, it's a picture, there's this tendency because of a lack of endurance for us all to fall asleep and to lose diligence. I mean, it doesn't matter how good the gift is, you get bored with it pretty quick. The greatest car in the world, if you got it, would only be exciting for a certain amount of time, and then it just becomes a car. How, how long does it take your children to get bored with their Christmas gifts? It's been a week. Some of them are, you know, already put away on the shelf in a week. David becomes king. He's fought battles for years. He, he becomes king. He, he sets up the kingdom. He battles for the kingdom. He, 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 he gets everything where he wants to, and then what happens? At the time the kings go out to war, he stayed home. Yeah, I've been there, done it. I mean, he's seen God move incredibly in his life, mightily, to, to elevate this shepherd boy to a king. And now he's king, and he's got everything he wants, and instead of moving forward, he just says, ah, I'm going to coast. Be, be careful. When you start coasting is when you start wrecking, which is what happened in David's life. He's where he shouldn't be. Things happen in his life. Next thing you know, David's an adulterer and a murderer. If you'd said to David, hey, you want to ruin your life today? He would have said, no, I'm not going to ruin my life. See, it didn't take just one. It wasn't like he went straight to the adultery murder, murder stage. What happened was he basically fell asleep. He lost his diligence and in doing so, ruined his life, ruined the heritage of his children in some sense. Wake up to the call for diligence. Be diligent. Don't let your guard down. Second point, awake to the command for action. Um, we, we not only need to remain diligent, but we are called to step out, 
to do something. And, and it, maybe it's not a big deal, but we're supposed to do something. Here's the picture in Proverbs. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. I mean, the food's there. Spoon's there. Plate's there. Everything's there. can't make this happen. He's obviously not from the South because we have no trouble making this eating. Listen, there's this tendency in the church to say, I do nothing, God does everything. For some of us, the food is right there, but God is saying, take hold of what I've given you. Now, there's another tendency in the church, I, I understand, that we're battling against that says, God does nothing and I do everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, yes, God has done the lion's share. He's put the food there. He's made it all happen. His grace is there for us. But at some point, we have to walk. There is a step that we're called to take in the Christian life. It's the picture of one who knows what to do but refuses to do it. The biblical illustration that I have for you this morning is the picture of Jonah. Remember, in Jonah 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah says, I don't think so. I hate those people. I mean, Jonah's a bigot. He hates those people. He does not want to go. And why does he not want to go? I mean, this is horrid for a prophet. <laughs> he doesn't want to go because if he preaches and they repent, God won't kill him. I mean, the bottom line, that's Jonah. He said, I know God. If I go and preach and they repent, he won't kill him. So if I don't go, he'll just kill him. Love those people. I have a real heart for people. I mean, Jonah doesn't. So what does he do? He makes a break for it. He runs, gets on a ship, goes away. God comes after him. This is in verses 4 through 6. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Storm comes, they're doing what sailors do, let's save the ship. Even if we got to get rid of the cargo, even if we got to get rid of the, all of this stuff, we got to get rid of, they're praying to their own gods, no answer, storm still just coming against them. You would think with this mighty storm that everybody would be like, I mean, I'd, be, I'd have those patches probably all over my arm trying not to get seasick. Where's Jonah? But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. I mean, things are going crazy around him, and Jonah's asleep. Again, is it not a picture of the church in some ways? Where the world is in turmoil around us and instead of battling, doing what we can to battle the storm, we are instead 
sleep below deck. Well, I'm safe down here. <laughs> I mean, think of the logic of this. I can't see it. I'm, I'm going to be okay, so I'm going to just go to sleep. We don't realize we're on the ship that's going down. And God has called us to do our part. It's a call to action. The captain comes down to him and says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. <laughs> For many of us, warnings have been issued, both personally and corporately, and the, th the thought is, will we react? Will we respond or will we hide? God is calling us to action. <clears throat> Let me just put these two points together before I go to the third. <clears throat> Diligence is this mental, uh, spiritual awareness of what's going on around us so that we don't get blinded. But the action is the response to what we see. And God is calling us to both. God, God is calling us to be a people who not only see but do. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. It's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. We're to do what God has called us to do. We're to wake up to this call for diligence. See it, step out in it. See it, step out in it. Do it. Be, become part of it. The question is, will we? Or will we be content in the hold of the ship? Trying to hide ourselves from the world. <clears throat> Let me just say, go back to faith and endurance, faith and patience. Because if you're diligent and you're acting on that diligence, it gets wearisome. Doesn't it? It becomes tiring so that you want to quit. Or fall asleep. And I'm not saying we shouldn't rest, you know, physically. And I, that, that's not the idea here this morning, that you go through life never resting or never getting the proper. I'm talking about this constant sluggard mentality. That's what Proverbs is saying. Not, it's not that you don't rest, it's that you never wake up, that you never act, you never do, you never respond. We need to, to awaken to the command for action. Final one. We need to awake to the crisis of deception. We, we need to awake to the fact that many of us, if we're not careful, we can easily become deceived. <clears throat> Again, here's the point. Let me just lead into it and then give you the passage. The point is this. We are all in danger of becoming deceived. And this is not a matter of of knowledge, it's a matter of the presence of the Spirit of God who is the Spirit of truth working in your life. In other words, you can know everything and still be deceived. Hello? I mean, think about it. You can know things and still be deceived because you think you know what's right, but the terrible thing about deception is you don't know you're deceived when you're deceived. And I don't think I could say that sentence again. So um, hopefully you understand the point is that we we think we know, and so we're acting on what we know, but the terrible thing is we're deceived. So we're acting on deception rather than truth. 
Now, that's a complicated thought, but not really. Here's how the author of Proverbs put it. He says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside or I will be murdered in the streets. Now, when you just gloss over that passage, you probably don't, you might not get the, the, what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I'm not going outside. There's a lion out there or I'll be murdered out there. The author of Proverbs is saying that the guy is deceived. There's no lion out there. And the odds are really high he won't be murdered. But he's using what he thinks is outside as an excuse to not act. As an excuse to not respond. Here's the point. You act on what you believe to be true. You act on what you believe to be true. Um, I'll give you, I mean, we could think of almost anything, but um, I, I like to run. Now, I like to run for two reasons that I believe to be true. One, it helps with my health. It keeps me active. It's supposed to help my heart. I've read all this stuff. I believe that to be true. Therefore, I run. And I believe it helps relieve stress in my life. I, I'm a, I think I'm a nicer person overall if I run versus when I don't run. And you can ask my wife uh, if you don't believe me, but, you know, like when I hurt my arm last year, couldn't run for about two months, she was ready for me to get out of the house and go run. Because I, I, I don't have anything to do with the energy that I have, so running helps me. Now, I believe those two things. Helps me with my health relieve stress in my life, therefore I run. Now, are those two things true? Well, again, I think they're true. I believe them to be true. And because I believe them to be true, I act on them. You're the same way. You, you act on things. You know, you, you don't eat dessert all the time because you believe it'll be unhealthy for you. You eat certain foods and don't eat certain foods because you have been told that they're healthy, whether... I mean, you believe it and you act upon it. Here's the correlation to that. You don't act on things you don't really believe are true. Now, this is where it gets tough. If I were to say to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you believe prayer is important? You would say, yeah, I, I think prayer is important. Okay, how much do you pray? Well, not that much. No, then you don't really believe it's important. I, I'm not trying to be ugly. But I'm just trying to say, the deception is this. I can think one thing and not do it. And you can't because you don't really believe it. It's not a matter of faith in your life. Do you think that, do you believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ that sharing your faith with others who are going to go into an eternal separation from God for all of eternity is really important? Yeah, I think I should do that. Then here's my question. Do you do it? And if you don't, then one of two answers. Either you don't really believe it, or you don't really care about those people. You're like Jonah. Ah, they deserve it. You know, if they were as good as me, they'd have a relationship with God, and everything would be good. I mean, we need to wake up to the crisis of deception. Because when you're, when you're in this sleep, you'll do things and just... <clears throat> let me give you one quick illustration. When I was in seminary, I used to drive about an hour and a half uh, to go to this church where I was 
uh, on staff. And so I had to go on Wednesdays and the weekends to this church where I was the minister of music and on staff. And so I had a lot of late night driving to do where, you know, you're at church, you're working. And because I was a part-time staff member and I'm an hour and a half in the church, I'd have to do everything I needed to do before I would leave to go back to school. So like on Wednesday night, for instance, I try to get to church early, have choir practice, for those of you who remember those days, um, have Wednesday night choir practice, and then I'd stay, finish planning the service, uh, making sure everything is, is, is ready for the weekend when I have to drive back. And so I would drive late. It'd be like 11, 12, 1 in the morning when I'd be driving back to Fort Worth. I remember one occasion where like, I'm driving back, I'm listening to something on the radio, I'm just driving back, and I don't feel sleepy. I, I mean, I don't think I'm sleepy as I rub my eyes. All of a sudden, I come to myself, and I'm like four exits, 15 miles past my exit. I, I'm still on the freeway, and I'm just cruising. I'm making really good time. But I'm four exits past where I was supposed to have gotten off. And I'm like, I, I have no memory of those 15 miles at all. And I've driven this route time and time and time again. I could do it in my sleep, although I can't. Listen, when you're deceived, you may be making great time, but you don't know where the heck you're going. Moving and moving in the right direction are two different things. You may be doing stuff, but you're doing it. Isn't that terrible to think, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm, I'm killing it, but I'm going in the wrong direction? Why? Because then you've got to go back and spend all the effort to get back to where you should have been in the first place. Now, the grace of God is there for you, not to say you're done for, but the grace of God is there, but it's still, wouldn't it be better to wake up rather than fall asleep or stay in this zone? One last biblical example. In the book of Samson, uh, the book of Judges, we see one of the final judges is Samson, who is a flawed but powerful man. Uh, we see that sin progressively, and almost in his case, it just takes hold of his life. He's driven, though he's a, he's a judge, he's, he's really a, a man of flawed character. He's, he's abused, abusive with um, alcohol. He's abusive with friends. He's not a, he doesn't seem like a very nice guy at all. But when they need to be delivered, he's the guy to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. So, you know the story. Samson falls in love with the wrong woman. Delilah. That's a whole different sermon. Um, well, I'll do someday. But he falls in love with Delilah. The Philistines come and they pay, that's the enemies of Israel, they pay her money to find out what is the source of Samson's strength. Because they know they can't beat him straight up. So they've got to find some back door and they want to find the door of how do we get rid of his strength. So Delilah comes to Samson and says, uh, give me the source of your strength. And she asks, and he says something like, well, if anyone ties me up with fresh bowstrings, I'll lose all my strength. So while he falls asleep, 
Delilah ties him up, has some people tie him up with fresh bowstrings. Then she yells to wake him up. The Philistines are upon us, which they were because technically she let him in the house. So they were there. So Samson gets up, he bursts the bowstrings off, rushes out. Delilah um, comes back to Samson, all hurt like, you know, um, hey, tell me that you, you deceived me. Tell me the source of your strength. Samson, he is not. He is a powerful man, but he is not, um, you know, the sharpest iron in the fire, so to speak, or whatever you want to, whatever illustration you want to use. He tells her another thing about his, if you braid my hair, and then he, she braids his hair. They go through this like two more times where he tells her some lie. Isn't this a wonderful relationship? She's nagging, he's lying. He's nagging, she's lying. He's lying. So two more times he tells her, and finally she comes to him and, and says, you, you keep deceiving me. What is the source of your strength? And I don't know, it's just a picture of a guy who's become so deceived that, and it says, by the way, if you want to read this in the book of Judges, that he, he finally tells her because she nags him to death. I mean, that's the reason. He finally gives in and says, hey, I've razors never touched my head. I'm a Nazarite. says in Judges 16, having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. I mean, to me, Samson is the picture of a powerful man who falls asleep and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Here's the killer. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. He was unaware. He felt the same. I'll just go out. I'm going to you know, kick some booty. Take down those Philistines. Jumps up, goes out, doesn't even know that God's presence is no longer with him. Sin desensitizes us, and soon we fall asleep, even in these green chairs. We become indifferent. We become careless with spiritual things. We become deceived. While we're asleep, by the way, the deceiver is at work. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Many of us are being carried about on the winds of deception. If we're not careful, we will be led astray. I, I, I want to encourage us this morning to do this. Wake up. Understand the present time. The hours come to wake up from our slumber because salvation is nearer than we first believed. The question I have for all of us today, and I think this is where fasting and prayer will help us, is are we awake? Are we truly awake? One of the things fasting will do, it will, it will so disrupt 
some of the patterns of your life that it will help you wake up. Last night, I don't know about you, but I'm getting too old to stay up to see the new year in. You know, besides, my family's all different places. Kathy's in Texas with her mom. People, you know, my kids are doing different things. So, you know, ball game was over, 10.30, quarter of 11. I got nothing. I'm headed to bed. <laughs> Midnight, my neighborhood goes off. I mean, I think the guy next door to me had cannons uh, unleashing at about 12.03. My sleep was disrupted. But, and that's what I always say. Fasting will disrupt things in your life to the point where it'll help you wake up. It's one of the reasons I, I try to do this every year, and I do it other times as well, because I understand I, like you, am, I become lethargic. I become apathetic. I just think I'm cruising in the right direction, and I'm five exits past where I should be. W wake up to the call for diligence. Become diligent. Don't let your guard down. Wake up to the command to act. Do what God has called you to do and wake up to the fact that you and I all are in a crisis of deception around us. And if, and if not, but by the power of the Spirit that indwells us, we'll never see truth for what it is. See, it's light that makes everything visible. This is why it's said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. I say this in love to all of us. People, it's time to wake up. Lord, we thank you for your call in our lives, and we pray that, God, you would lead us and guide us and direct us. And Lord, I pray for Fullness Christian Fellowship today. I pray that, God, we would be a people who would wake up to your call, to your command, to your action in our lives, that, that the deception that so easily entangles us would be revealed for what it is. Lord, turn on the lights of our lives so that we can see where we are and what we need then give us the courage to step out in it in faith. And as we do, may we keep pressing forward in diligence no matter what. Lord, we, I, I want to speak today against spiritual lethargy, apathy, and that sluggard spirit that will so easily jump on us. And instead, may we be a people called after your name, a kingdom of priests who do not slow down, who do not give up, who do not back up, but keep pressing forward in you. Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in this year ahead, in all of our lives, and in this place, for your name's sake and for the kingdom. In Jesus' name. We're going to take up 